Good morning, everyone. Ephesians 6, um, verses 1 to 9. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, Doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours, is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. Thanks, Val. Well, there you go, Stephen and Lauren. Um, It's right there, verse 1 of our chapter. Uh, Paul's key piece of parenting advice, as you seek to raise Amity to be a delightful young woman, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Actually, I read this and thought, I don't know about Amity or Luna, but I reckon Paul clearly doesn't know my family. After all, he's got it all the wrong way around. Forget me exasperating them. I tell you, they exasperate me. I mean, let me just run you through bedtime the other night for us. And it's pretty typical for our household. I was pulling my hair out. We've made our way through the the routine of dinner and bath and PJs and prayers and and, and, we're getting tucked into bed, a kiss goodnight. I love you, darling. I love you too, Dad gently closing the door. But Dad, of course, I'm thirsty. Okay, okay, quick drink, here's a sip of water, you know, off to bed, tuck back in, okay, closing the door. But Dad, my toe hurts. Of course it does. Oh, it's got a, a sharp nail, like it's rubbing on the other, can we, can we cut it? I think, darling, we'll just, let's do that tomorrow, just lie still and you go off to sleep. Good night, closing the door. But Dad, I want to dream about butterflies tonight, and I can't remember how. <sighs> Just close your eyes and imagine, you know, a beautiful butterfly fluttering through the leaves, the, the, the trees, the flowers, and good night, darling, close the door. But Dad, just one more question, which in our house means I'm stalling, and I've got 20 of these lined up, so they're just going to keep coming. Yes, darling? Um, when will I be an adult? <sighs> like in about... 15 years, not soon enough. Okay, darling, it's time to sleep now. Good night. I love you. Good night, Dad. Love you too. Gently closing the door. But Dad, 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 Dad. <clears throat> yes, darling. Dad, I've got to go to the toilet. Whew, it drives me nuts. I mean, is that what your household is like? Actually, I should be saying, is that what you were like when you were a kid? I'm sure I wasn't. Surely it should say, children, do not exasperate your parents. 
But actually, when I thought on it further, I can see the profound wisdom of what we've just read. Yes, my children exasperate me, but I can see that much greater danger of me exasperating them, that I would so push my agenda that they are left frustrated and angry. And here God shows us a very different way of setting our agenda and relating to each other. And it's summed up in a verse that actually sits before what we've read. If you've got a Bible in front of you, just slide back to chapter 5, verse 21. This is the heading of of this whole section. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And what Paul unpacks there is then that he, he helps us to see how our whole household lives together. In fact, all of our relationships are lived out of reverence for Christ. And as we're about to see this morning, the basic assumption is that all of our relationships work best and are most honouring to God when they are framed in light of our relationship with Jesus. Or to put that another way, life is its most fulfilling, its, its most enduring, its most freeing when our relationships with each other are lived out in the context of our relationship with Jesus. Now, if you're joining us today for the first time, perhaps here for Amity's uh, baptism or one of the many families visiting from overseas and interstate, we are delighted that you are here. But I can appreciate that it might be a little bit hard to know quite what to do with what we've just read. Um, So it's actually helpful to see that we've come to this part of the Bible that has some very specific things to say about family and a few comments that seem just totally out of date, talking about slavery. Well, that has a context. Let me just bring you up to speed because I think it's actually helpful for us all, even if we've been here for the last couple of months. You see, what we've read, it comes from a letter written by one of Jesus' earliest followers, a guy named Paul. Within a decade of Jesus' death and resurrection, well, people like Paul were travelling throughout the Roman Empire, telling people about Jesus and his great significance for them. And as they went, not only did they claim that Jesus was able to restore our relationship with our Creator, but they argued that His resurrection from the dead showed Him to be the ultimate ruler of the whole universe. And now I get it. When you put it that bluntly, it sounds just an outrageous claim. Except that Jesus did actually rise from the dead. And his very character and and, and all of his teaching, well, it was anything but just the ravings of of a lunatic... And Jesus was profoundly compelling and he compelled people to live radically different lives because of their relationship with him. Paul himself, the guy that wrote this letter, he'd experienced that firsthand. He'd experienced what it was like to take Jesus at his word and so he made it his life's mission, literally, to, to tell others about Jesus too. And along the way, churches were started like this one in Ephesus, which is a city in what is now known as modern Turkey, And Paul was writing this letter to the church that he'd started a couple of years earlier. And as we land with this paragraph, it could feel like we've just been ploughing through a whole list of do's and don'ts. You know, children, do obey your parents. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. I'm excited about next week. What comes next? Well, actually, it's good for us to see that what we're reading, they're just some of the, the tangible consequences of seeing the whole world and our whole lives totally differently because we know Jesus. So instead of me being at the centre of my life, Jesus has shown me that he's at the centre of it. 
If you like a, a visual image to draw to mind, it's like each of us have got a little throne at the centre of our lives, a throne where the one who is the most important gets to sit. And for so much of my life, I sat quite comfortably on that throne, which is a problem, because Jesus is the only one who deserves to sit on it. And in fact, me sitting on my little throne, that's a pretty meagre but genuine attempt at kind of revolution and rebellion to, to do the impossible and overthrow the king or at least just ignore him. And because of that, my only hope of a relationship with God is in his willingness and his capacity to deal with my rebellion in a way that doesn't end in my annihilation. And that's exactly why God sent Jesus. It's what Paul's been writing about in Ephesians, that as God's own son, Jesus could come and take the penalty that I deserved for my rebellion. But even more than just taking away my penalty, as God the son... He could come representing the divine family and he could invite us to, to join the family, to share in what he shares, the beautiful love of God. And that's what totally changes life. Because instead of running my life according to my agenda, when I recognise that Jesus sits on the throne, well then I see the remarkable privilege of actually being able to run my life according to his agenda. Instead of having to look out for number one, because no one else is going to, we have the great freedom of entrusting ourselves to the Lord who reigns, knowing that He has promised to look after us. And all of that is the reality that sits behind what we've just read today. The reality that, that Jesus actually rules. And that He is a wonderful King, overflowing in mercy and kindness and compassion. That knowing where we stand with Him, that is what allows us to stand with a, a profound humility beside each other. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's what's going on in the passage that we've just read. Where, where even children and parents, they honour Jesus by the way that they submit to each other. Sure, it looks different depending on the place that we have, the roles that we have in our family. Children don't honour Jesus by pretending that they're in charge and parents don't honour Jesus by neglecting their role as parent. But a parent who knows that Jesus sits on the throne allows him to set the parenting agenda. That's what it means in verse 4 that we read, to, to bring children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. It's not a description of brainwashing your child, it's simply parenting when you know that neither yourself nor your child sits on, at the centre of the universe. Now that might sound like the most obvious thing to say, except I think at times, picture your average Saturday morning, Sunday morning footy match, or for your family it might be netball or soccer or the music recital, I reckon that's where you get a glimpse uh, of, of who's sitting on the throne, right? We've all seen it. You know, take the footy context, the family where the kid sits fair and square on the throne and, and they are worshipped and spoilt through the constant satisfaction of every whim and desire that they might have. And you don't need to be a psychologist to know that that's not actually being kind to the child. In the end, it will lead to exasperation, to use Paul's term here, because at some point they will have the rude awakening of realising that they are not the centre of the universe. But I think we also see the other kind of family as well, don't we? And if I'm honest, I think it's a particular temptation for the sport-loving Aussie dad. Because in this family, dad sits on the throne 
And the child is really just their means of kind of living out their dreams of sporting success. You've seen them, you know, with the 10-year-old dressed in the uniform that dad just longs to wear, except he knows it would look a little silly prancing around in that with dad bod going on. Or, or dad screaming for them sideline for the ref to open your eyes, or kids, get in the game. Because he sits on the throne and it's his agenda that's being run. Now you could insert mums, dads, footy, netball, debating, whatever it might be. But it will definitely end in exasperation and a whole host of other emotions that too many of us know too well, either as parents or as kids. But I think those scenarios, they stand in contrast to the family where Jesus sits on the throne. That instead of the kids taking centre stage, they're actually freed from the burden of having to fulfil their parents' dreams. But they are also given helpful constraints of knowing that there is actually someone who's in control in the best possible way. And parents, parents who refuse to get off the throne themselves, they are challenged. Challenged to honour Jesus in the way that they use their power. Because like it or not, that is what parents have. Parents have power to nurture or neglect their children. Or they have power to uphold and encourage them or to crush them with the weight of expectation. Now I have to say, as a father of three, in many ways I find the responsibility of parenting an incredible burden. It seems that every evening I could play back this montage of all of the ways I've got it wrong that day. And for me, that's actually part of the joy of knowing that Jesus sits on the throne. Far from checking out of my role as dad and putting my feet up, it actually means that I'm free to submit to his agenda, to take seriously the freedom and the responsibility that I have to raise my kids as part of his family. And isn't it great that God has something to say directly to kids here? I just want to kind of recognise that that just really stood out for me. Isn't it great that we see that God dignifies children by saying something specifically to them. Because in, in many ways, you know, this is, this is exactly why most of our kids are not in the building at the moment. They're out in their learning program because God speaks to kids. He dignifies them with the acknowledgement that, that He wants them in their family and, and we want them to learn from the Bible in a way that engages them. But we do still have a few kids in the building here. It's great to have you here. And of those of you even who are in your teens or even the young adults still living under mum and dad's roof, I want you to appreciate the significance of God addressing children directly in the Bible. Because I think for most kids, it feels like the world is made for grown-ups and you're just kind of marking time and, until you get a real job and a place of your own. But we see here that God recognises children are part of his family. Paul wrote this, this letter to a church, assuming that kids would read it. You are a valued part of God's family, even as a kid. And God knows that sometimes, well, let's be honest, perhaps even all of the time, your parents are really hard to honour. It's not something that comes easy or, or naturally. That's why you need to be encouraged in it. But kids, you need to know that this isn't just a rule that you have to follow. It's much more than that. It's actually what it looks like when you know that Jesus is on the throne and he's looking out for you. It's what it, it actually frees you to submit yourselves to others. That, that's a big word of, way of saying that actually allowing other people 
to have the respect and honour that they have simply because of the role that they have in your life, even if it feels really hard to do. So Paul writes to the church, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. Children, honour your father and mother. Fathers, bring up your children in the training and the instruction of the Lord. And then there's the elephant in the room, right, that we haven't even got to. What is it with a whole paragraph talking about slaves and masters? I mean, as plenty of people think, surely if the Bible supports slavery, then it just goes to show that it's totally irrelevant to us all today. Well, I just want to make a couple of brief comments about this. First, it's actually good for us to know that the Bible does not support slavery in the, some, in the way that some people would like to suggest. I want to just mention two other passages that the same bloke wrote. Paul wrote to a, a, a ministry co-worker called Timothy and he included slave traders as one category of people who would face the judgment of God. In his letter to another church in Corinth, he encouraged slaves to obtain their freedom if they had the opportunity. And I think it's telling that back in the evil days of the Atlantic slave trade, in the early 1800s, when slave owners wanted to publish a Bible that they could give to their slaves without fear that it would you know, rail them to rebellion, asking for freedom, well, they had to delete 90% of the Old Testament and more than 50% of the New Testament in what is published as the Slave Bible. You can see it in the British Museum and, and, uh, and the Smithsonian in Washington. Because slave owners could see that the vast majority of the Bible upheld the dignity of all people and it undermined their evil slave trade. So we come to a passage like this, and despite the popular sound bites in the media, it's good for us to know that the Bible certainly doesn't support slavery, not the kind of slavery that, that we know of from the 18th century slave trade, or even modern slavery that continues today. But yes, the Bible does talk about slavery as a reality to be acknowledged, uh, something to be navigated, almost as a given, and it's really helpful for us to see that in context. You see, in Ephesus in the first century, like the rest of the Roman Empire, it's estimated that about half the population were slaves. And often that slavery functioned as kind of the, the social welfare when there wasn't a government providing pensions. Rather than live in poverty, a person could sell themselves into the service of a, of a master with provision and protection given in return. But secondly, on the other hand, it is true that slaves were really vulnerable. They weren't the master's property in quite the same way as his donkey, and yet they certainly didn't have any of the same rights and protections that a son or daughter in the home had. And it's nothing like the rights and the protections that we would understand of in, in modern employment law. Slaves were certainly vulnerable. And I think that vulnerability actually helps us to see how radical this passage is and how helpful it is for us to be reading it, even in 21st century today, where I'm going to take it as a given that none of us are slaves or slave owners. If either of those were the case for you, please come and chat with me after the service. Because for both the slave and the master, honouring Jesus meant living an honourable life, even when they could get away with an easier alternative. So verse 7, slaves, serve wholeheartedly as if you're serving the Lord, not people. Verse 8, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever they do, whether they are slave or free. Verse 9, masters, know that he who is both their master and yours, he's in heaven. And there's no favouritism with him. It's a picture of an integrity of character that comes from knowing that Jesus sits on the throne. 
Integrity, that's that idea of being in private what you are in public, that that the two match up, you're consistent. And true integrity before Jesus means knowing that he sees and he knows everything. Which cuts both ways, of course, because it's a warning. It was a warning for the slave to know that Jesus saw their corner cutting and their their attempts to curry favour with the boss at the expense of others. For the master to know that that Jesus saw their abuse of power and their threats to manipulate and to control. But it's also an encouragement for the slave to know that that their hard work behind the scenes was recognised by Jesus, even if it wasn't recognised by their master. For the master to know that when they're with the boys down at the club and they're, they're being paid out because they've gone soft, because they don't put the boot in, they're not harsh enough with their slaves... Or the one who who really knows, who sees their respect and their sincerity and integrity, that's the Lord Jesus. He sees and he knows and he will bring justice for the slave and master alike, for the vulnerable and for the powerful, just the same. So we read a passage like this and it's, it's very easy, it's very tempting to kind of dismiss this as just out of date so irrelevant for us and yet it is the challenging call to think very differently about power and privilege in society. The context is so very different, we need to be really careful not to go, oh slaves, masters, that just maps to, you know, I'm a boss at work or I'm slaving hard at work. Let's be careful to read the context but the attitudes, they're transferable. Respect, sincerity, integrity and ultimately entrusting ourselves to the just judge who sees and he knows and he will ultimately set things to right. It means that we don't have to secure justice for ourselves but it also means that we can pursue justice for others even if it's going to cost us our own security. To be the one who speaks out against abuse in the workplace, for example, because we know that Jesus sits on the throne. Do you see how that framework runs through all of this? That Jesus is a just and right judge, that there is no favouritism here, you can't just pass him a wad of cash under the table and expect that he's going to overlook your abuse of power, you you can't point to your social connections and, and kind of expect that he'll pave the way for your advancement. So Stephen and Lauren, all of this talk of slaves and masters, that might seem a world away from the life that you want for Amity and yet it's the very framework that you must remember as you seek to raise her in the real world, a world where people exert power, a world where as an Australian she herself will almost almost certainly exert power, teach her that Jesus sits on the throne and while none of us are slaves or slave owners Not many of us in the room are kids, less than half of us are fathers, they were the three relationships spoken to here. This is the framework that shapes how we approach all of our relationships. Parenting, knowing that Jesus sits on the throne, honouring our parents, knowing that Jesus sits on the throne, serving as an employee or a supervisor, living out a life that seeks to conduct ourselves with dignity and, and integrity and humility and grace because we know that Jesus sits on the throne. 
We know that he invites us into his family, not because we deserve it, but simply because he is kind. And that as a part of his family, he empowers us to submit to others because we know that our security, our hope, our identity, they are secure with him. You see, it's a reminder that that hard work of of integrity, of patience, gentleness, kindness, they are worth it because he sees and he knows even if others will scorn you for it. To sum it up, Jesus humbles the proud and he lifts up the lowly because we all know that in the end, we are totally dependent on his grace. So let's pray that we'd remember that. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus sits on the throne, that in the chaos of life with all its ups and downs, its pressures, its anxieties, We know that there is a good and mighty King who reigns over all. Father, we thank you that you offer us your mercy and your grace, your kindness, even that we can be one of your children through faith in this King, our Lord Jesus. And so whatever our station in life, whether we are parents, whether we still relate to our parents as children, whether we are seeking to honour those who are serving over us at work or those who who we could be tempted to boss around, whatever our situation in life. Father, help us to remember that Jesus sits on the throne and help each one of us to reflect more on what it means for us to willingly and joyfully bow the knee to him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.